welcome to Rugged Theology, where we talk church planting, theology, and drink coffee. Welcome to Rugged Theology. I am Adam Diamond, your host, and today we have a, you know, new friend, good friend. Uh, you know, I should probably text him more, <laughs> but I met him at the gathering. Um, was it was it this past year? Yes. Andrew? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long year. Um, met him in Calgary this past year. So Andrew is, I met him at the gathering, which is through CNBC and Send Network Canada. And Andrew has a really great story. Uh, he's pastoring in Montreal, so, Andrew, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, and then you can kind of, as you feel comfortable, go into your testimony. And I pray for our listeners that it is something that they will take with them, they'll be challenged by them, and they'll also be encouraged by. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, first of all, Pastor Adam. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, yes, my name is Andrew Mark. That's my first name. And, um, and I'm married, and I have two little girls um here with me live in the suburbs of montreal um i and i do pastor uh, a church we just planned it actually just six months ago uh right in the heart of the uh, the city of montreal on the island and um and so uh definitely is an exciting time for our family um so that is just a little bit brief about myself I can just jump right into my, share my testimony, if you will. Let's go. Okay. So my journey really demonstrates the Lord's sovereignty and incomprehensible love. Um, and I pray that it really would not only just inform people, but also edify those who are hearing me to the glory of Christ. There's a, a passage really, uh, I always like to kind of, come back to every time I think of my testimony and it is found in in Isaiah uh, 65 verse 1 and it reads as follows I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me I was found by those who did not seek me to a nation that did not call on my name I said here am I here am I um, really this is exactly what God had done to me. See, Pastor Adam, I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia to an Egyptian father and a Saudi mother. Um, I was raised in obviously it's a Muslim country governed by Sharia law. Islam was effectively all I knew as it was comprehensively preached from the pulpits, enforced by law, taught in schools, practiced by the culture, and reinforced at home. I lived and breathed Islam. And Islam was ultimately my identity and nationality. As a devout Muslim, who practiced it fervently until the age of 17. Uh, spiritually, I felt the burden of the oppression of Islam, which was a really, it plagued my life with a threat of an accursed life, followed by misery in the grave and a hellish judgment. If I did not obey all the rules, and make my way into salvation by buttoning up myself and pulling myself by my own bootstraps, if you will. Having disobeyed, of course, many times, I was shadowed by the fear of divine wrath and torture after death. 
Islam entrenched terror deep into my spiritual being and life. Terror became my sole motivation to obey Allah and his messenger Muhammad through the Quran. This is what Allah said. And the Hadith is how Muhammad lived. But, you know, this is in a huge contrast with what I, how I, when later when I reflect back and I remember all of this, I now as a Christian, I'm reminded of scripture, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, says there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see, the burden of fear and spiritual horror was perpetuated by Muslim imams, really akin to those uh, in Jesus' day, which we call the Jewish Pharisees, who burdened those under their charge. And Jesus uh, tells them that they tell tell us about them. They tie up they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The pressure to live up to the standards of Allah was so cumbersome that it would bring tears to men and women and children during the most sacred holiday. It's Ramadan during corporate prayer in the uh, Mecca mosque. Indeed, Islam was about storing up good deeds to ransom our soul from divine judgment by paying our way into this eternal bliss uh, we called a Jannah, or that's the heaven in Islam. And the reward in the, in Jannah was, was having a life full of alcohol, sex, and all sorts of worldly comfort, but it only comes in the afterlife. Ironically, of course, Islamic heaven is the aspiration of unregenerate carnal men. Uh, such desires are the opposite of those desires we see in scripture. Uh, uh, so there, there is an irreconcilable chasm between Christian theology and Islamic theology. The Islamic view of God, man, revelation, the moral law, Angels, Satan, heaven, hell, judgment, and so many other doctrines are repugnant to evangelical biblical theology. The contrast is in fundamental aspects uh, of their respective theological system affecting every single doctrine, making them so incompatible that it is inconceivable for both to share the same source. For example, there is utterly no divine, uh, divinely affected spiritual transformation for Muslims. I was not born again. I just had to live my life uh, the way I, I, I could to be a, a good Muslim. But sadly, uh, as a Muslim, I remained a merely worldly person who simply postponed my fleshly desires, which is the joy of sex, alcohol, and material riches, to heaven, to the afterlife. I'm reminded of Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. See, the problem is when I was being raised as a Muslim, 
all I desired are the things of the flesh. And all I had to do is to abstain from that, from these desires in this life in order to gain them in the next. Throughout my childhood, I also struggled spiritually with nightmares and like really demonic nightmares. Uh, these nightmares kind of slowed down as I got older. At age 18, I was already settled in Canada at that point after my family immigrated a few years prior. But I started to drift further, farther away from Islam uh, to be attracted by the things of, of our world. Slowly but surely, the chains of Islam uh, were loosened up, but only to be replaced with this new, better-looking, shiny chains of the world, needing to live up to another set of standards. I burdened myself with worshipping idols of money, sex, women, and all the, all the stuff that young people want these days. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, I was tormented by, by the shadowing fear of Islam was still there because I was not obeying all the rules. Because... The rules were that I would abstain from these things now in order to get them later. But throughout my university education, uh, I was so caught up with fulfilling what I wanted now. So I started to forget about Islam, the Islam I was raised in. At that time, I actually started working at a nightclub in Montreal, which facilitated all my carnal desires. Before my graduation, I uh, I had the one of these nightmares that I used to have as a child, which I continued to have on and on, on and off in my adulthood. This particular nightmare, though, was so scary that made me wake up in a pool of sweat, having soaked my bed sheets. Uh, I I moved over to my brother's uh, bed. I slept next to my younger brother. Actually, um, in the nightmare, demons were pursuing me until they cornered me. Seeing that there was no escape from them, I started reciting, of course, the Quranic verses that I memorized when I was young. You know, you see, when I was younger, I had imam, an imam come over to my house from the age of seven to the age of 13 or 14, and uh, twice a week, and I memorized two-thirds of the Quran. So I, I knew a lot of Quran. And so I, when I was cornered, I just recited the verses that I know were supposed to protect me from demonic beings. So I recited them. But of course, to my dismay, the verses did nothing to stop these demonic beings. While my capture was imminent, a colossal cross appeared out of nowhere in my hand, stopping them at once, and it saved me. Of course, as a Muslim, I was amazed at the power and authority of this cross. But I didn't think too much of it, and I just let it go. After I graduated, not long after that, coming back a year and a half later, um, I moved back to Saudi Arabia, and I worked for um, a large multinational company, and which allowed me to visit a lot of Middle Eastern countries at that time. Um, during that time, really, I relived my past, how I grew up, and exposed me to the brutal realities, spiritual realities, for sure, of Islam. I was forced to kind of face my background in a clash of my home culture and my newly adopted Canadian culture. So I, I was in this cultural dissonance. Uh, this period of my life was 
a crossroad moment for me uh, where I was compelled to pick a side, either to continue to be a Muslim or become an agnostic skeptic. I chose the latter. But of course, uh, I was uh, fearful uh, of any social interaction that would go deeper than the surface level because I did not want to share with people that I left Islam because I, I, I feared social and familial persecution. Not to mention the real possibility of judicial prosecution because at that point I was considered an apostate of Islam, someone who had left Islam. One night during that time, I had um, another dream. This time, I dreamt of a bearded Mediterranean-looking man with white robe looking right at me, placing his left hand over my right shoulder and pressed gently. Uh, in, the, in the dream, I could not really make up his facial features, but somehow I knew it was Jesus Christ. I woke up astounded since I had no recent relevant thoughts of Christ or, or have watched any, I did not watch any movies or anything like that. But I wanted to believe as a good agnostic skeptic that it was just my subconscious creating these images, some, some game, you know, it's not real. A few weeks passed uh, when a Muslim colleague of mine had recently returned from vacation from Cyprus. She came over to my cubicle and she gave me a gift. And she said, here, this is a gift I got you from Cyprus. I thought you might like it. And so uh, she goes back to her cubicle and I open my hand and it's a necklace with a cross on it. Mm. I, I was really shocked. Why would a Muslim friend, a colleague of mine would bring me a cross? So I asked her, why would you bring me such a gift? She replied, I don't know. I just thought you might like it. Could it be a coincidence? I didn't know what to think. But of course, as a typical skeptic, I just let it go without any further scrutiny or contemplation. Um, some time had passed. Um, of course, being unable to live a double life in Saudi Arabia, um, telling everybody I'm a Muslim while I'm actually agnostic. I just couldn't bear it anymore. I returned back to Montreal. That's when I was reunited with an old friend of mine who went to school together. Uh, his name is Joe. Joe was uh, a former uh, Greek Orthodox who was born again after a serious battle with depression. Joe uh, invited me to go to his church after I shared with him about the, 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 the dream I had about Jesus. He said, man, you really have to come to church with me. Uh, I, I responded and I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to leave one religion to enter into another religion. And that's when he told me this cheeky line. Well, no, it's not. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, which is true. But it's just such a cliche because we all say it all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, initially, I resisted. But eventually, you know what? I thought, you know what, I want to I wanna give it a shot. So that's, you know, when the curiosity got the best out of me, I, 
I took Joe up on his offer and I joined his church service. I went with Joe to this local evangelical church. Uh, this was the first time I ever stepped into a Christian church in my entire life. I felt so awkward and this weird feeling it's just that overcome me of, man, this is awesome. This is really cool. It's an experience. But one of the things that just really surprised me is how Christians were singing joyfully, worshiping their God. It was a sharp contrast. It made a really strong impression on me. If you remember, if you recall what I said earlier, that one of the most spiritual moments I have witnessed were when people gathered together during the last 10 days of Ramadan in Mecca, in the, in the, the holiest uh, you know, mosque in Islam, and people were crying out of fear of punishment. And that was the most kind of the holiest, most reverent time a Muslim would have. Mm. is crying out of fear. It's a massive and a sharp contrast. Of course, when you look at Christians, the most intimate moment for them, they don't have an, an one holy site. Every church is a holy site. Every place where, where God's people are gathered is a holy site. And so they are rejoicing. They are singing. I had another problem with that, by the way. Uh, music. Music and songs caught me off guard uh, <laughs> because they were used as means to worship. You know, the problem is, of course, in Islam, uh, music is haram. So they're not supposed to uh, to use music as a mean to worship God. I asked myself, I, I thought this to myself when I was listening to this. I'm like, where's the reverence? You know, um, this is the exact opposite of what I learned in Islam. In Islam, music is satanic, are satanic instruments leading the righteous, quote unquote, to departure. Nevertheless, I paid attention to the words being sung rather than just the music. And I tried to make sure to catch myself not to project Islamic theology onto Christian theology. But the, the words were so striking it was just expressions of love towards God and a sense of deep gratitude for what God had done. What did God do to Christians? I didn't know. After the service, uh, Pastor John greeted me and he offered me my first Bible. And, and he told me, why don't you begin by reading the Gospel of Matthew? After I started reading it, it quickly became clear that there is something so different about this man, Jesus. He was so compelling to me. I could not stop reading about him. He made me realize that I had lived all of my life in bondage in Islam. And even after I left Islam, I exchanged the chains of Islam with the, the chains of the world. A different type of bondage, but bondage nonetheless. As, a, as all Christians know, sanctification, of course, is a process uh, that works through walking with Jesus. So I, I didn't just all overnight just leave the nightlife and, and drinking and the partying, but God started a work in me at that point. I started my journey 
working by uh, working through the you know the New Testament, beginning with the Gospel of Matthew, of course, and the teaching of Jesus. All of it, not only Jesus was a compelling person to me, but also his teaching was so captivating. It opened my mind to new realities, such as my own depravity, the objective purpose of life, as opposed to a subjective thing that you create your own meaning in life, which, by the way, only says that life in itself does not have objective meaning. If we have to give it meaning, there's a purpose already there embedded in creation because God is the creator. One of the most striking teaching of Christ were, uh, for me at least, was the Sermon on the Mount and the Passion Week, the portions of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, really, these were life-altering passages for me. After reading the Gospel of Matthew, I got struck with this, I got stuck with this notion, rather, I want to say. I understood that before I even read it, I understood this from Philippians. When Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8, Christ, he, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I did not know what would happen to me when I died. I had many questions and more doubts, but I only found my satisfaction in the Bible. Not that I got all my answers right away, but I knew the God of the Bible would not leave me hanging, but he will answer me in due time. While waiting for my answers, a verse kept coming back to me, giving me the patience and encouragement to continue to study. And it is the one found in Mark 9.24. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Understanding that Jesus Christ, who is God himself, came to live a life that I should have lived and to die on the cross for me, was life-altering. I understood that God knew what I was going through and that he could empathize with my doubts, weakness, and fear. For, I mean, the scripture says we do have a high priest who is able to empathize um, with our weaknesses. I realized uh, that if if there was such thing as eternal life and salvation, I could not attain them on my own because I knew who I am. And being honest with myself, even my own mother would be appalled at the things that I have done. Keep in mind, I was a club manager after all, and I wanted to, I lived a really hedonistic life, just all about me and what I desired. Um, so, but but God was merciful to me. And, um, and slowly but surely, I was sanctified and the Lord really helped me leave a life of sin behind. Now, to know the cure for death and to keep the gift of eternal life to myself 
was unthinkable. It would feel uh, like I am helping the devil to make fewer people know about Jesus. This is God's work. I, I recognize that. And, and God in Christ has commanded us and commanded me and all Christians to bring this good news to the ends of the earth. This much was crystal clear from the Great Commission verses in the Gospel of Matthew 28, 19, 20. People need to believe in Jesus to be saved. I was in Saudi Arabia. What were, what were the odds of me hearing the gospel? Similarly, what are the odds of anyone in that country hearing the gospel? But maybe Saudi Arabia is too far from us right now, as, we, as I sit here in Montreal. But the same is true here in Montreal and across our country. Uh, Canadians are far from Jesus, just as any Saudi would be right now. For this reason, I never stop proclaiming this gospel of salvation. And I pray that my hearers would do the same. Um, ultimately, this is my testimony is just one of many testimonies of what Christ had done in our lives. And I'm grateful to God that he gave me the opportunity to share what he had done in my life. And, um, and ultimately, we need to know that Jesus is the one who died on behalf of those who trust in him. And he was raised from the dead for our justification before God. Having been exalted at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus became not only a savior for sinners, but also the one who guarantees our eternal life through his intercession. So my prayer is that, that those who hear me can trust in Christ today and obey all that he commanded so we can be together in eternal life, in the blessed presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one day. Amen, brother. Your story is <laughs> one of you know God's amazing redemption. Um, like I said, even just the chances of you even hearing the gospel um, over in Saudi is is very minuscule. Um, and yet here we are in Canada and we're finding people who are far from God here as well. Um, I mean, you, you touched on it a bit, but very briefly before we clue this up, but I want to have you back again. Uh, I've got I got a few things I think our viewers would like to hear. And I would like to know, too, about how your church planting in Montreal is going. Um, but uh with your story and with how God has worked in your life. And I know the ups and downs of you know, being a pastor. And sometimes it's like, am I called to this? Am I not called to this? And sometimes it's just days like, you know, if I just did a nine to five, I wouldn't have to deal with this. <laughs> like that, that happens. Let's, let's be honest. That happens in ministry. Mm -hmm. um, but through your process of becoming a pastor and planting in Montreal uh, and what God has done in your life, what has stuck out to you the most? Like what has, um, with what God is do doing, what would you say is last stuck with you the most through your ups and downs, your trials? Um, I think God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And knowing that God is unchanging, God is still sovereign. He is still um, is able to save someone like me. It gives me hope that he can work through me and other Christians 
to bring this gospel and good news to others. So when I am down, I rem- I look back. Sometimes, you know, when we're all sin, we all stumble in sin. And I look back at the work of God in my life. And it reminds me that God is at work in and through me. And so I never despair. And I look at the calling that God has given me as a, as a minister of the gospel. What a, an amazing privilege um, is it for me to, to be a minister of, of God uh, to his people. And it just uh, fills me with gratitude. With all the troubles of ministry and uh, in just our Christian walk and in the climate in which we live, Honestly, there is no greater calling uh, than to serve God with the ups and downs, knowing and remembering that God is unchanging and God is sovereign. And he who started a good work in me will bring it to completion. And and if God has called me to this, and, and he did, uh, through the confirmation of the body, and as, as I'm confirmed as an elder in the church, I know this is what God has called me, and so I have to persevere in it. And that's, I think, the only thing that I can, I can do. Just remind myself of Christ, what He had done, His suffering, His perseverance, uh, what He has accomplished um, objectively in the in the gospel, but also subjectively in my life. I think they, these things to remember is really an important foundational. Uh, Christian um, commandment is to remember what God had done objectively for those for 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 salvation, but also what He had done in my life and my calling. Right, I think that really helps me um, focus in the ups and downs to kind of keeps me grounded and anchored. No, that's great. I mean, I like to try and give, uh, we'll say, the average listener, you know, your lay person things they can take from church planting and being pastors and uh, things they can apply and just be reminded to, you know, we're all, we're all wretched sinners. I mean, we all think, you know, at times we're the worst of sinners and we, I think we should because there's thoughts in my head at times, I think with Paul people and then my past and, you know, we can go into it, but uh, it's, it's great to be reminded, listen, if God can save me, he can save the people I'm working with. Amen. And we're called, we're called, whether as elders or, you know, just even as Christians to spread that gospel, to share with others, you know, to see them come to Christ. Um, and that's, that's the greatest joy we can have. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, before we let you go, brother, uh, what are ways that we could be praying for you and anyone that listens to this, how can they be praying for you? Well, I, I think just continue to pray. I mean, just in the notion of perseverance, that God would give me um, the strength to continue to be faithful uh, to his calling in my life, uh, to pray for the church in Montreal, for his work here. Um, and um, and yeah, just I think these are two simple prayers. Pray for me and also that they should pray for their pastors too, for their elders mm-hmm. as well, uh, for their churches because uh, Montreal is a dark place, but just as dark as a lot of places in Canada. I mean, across the whole country, there's uh, Christians are not many, and uh, we need to be praying for each other. Um, so if you think of me, then think of your elder. If you think of our church plant in Montreal, 
think of your church also in your area. Amen, Andrew. And thanks again for joining us and sharing your story. Uh, you know, I'm I'm for one and grateful that God saved you, brought you to our country, um, and that you know you're you're working here, and that that I got to meet you. I mean, I think we were both encouraged from our own little stories. Dave, that's true. <laughs> I'm I'm I already told I already told my church about you guys, what God had done in Newfoundland through you. And uh, so many, many in our church, by the way, they we still pray for you. We bring you up often um, as an example of perseverance um, and, and faithfulness. So you guys, that's amazing, was, man. That's coming together as a body. And you said Newfoundland, right? Like, I'm so impressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you trained me well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Uh, so I'll end it here. Uh, thanks again. And for those of you listening, um, I'll have details there for where you can find Andrew and his church uh, in the post. So look that up. Also be praying for them. Be praying for your elders. Until then, uh, we'll catch you again next week. You've been listening to Rugged Theology. Rugged Theology is brought to you by Mile One Mission. If you want to know more about Mile One Mission and our work in Newfoundland and Labrador, visit www.mileonemission.ca.